Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Professor Vincent Lloyd. Uh, Dr. Vincent Lloyd is an associate professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University. Is uh, Today, he's here to talk with us about a book called Black Dignity, The Struggle Against Domination, which was published by Yale University Press. And his previous books include Black Natural Law, and he also co-edited Race and Secularism in America. He also co-edits the journal Political Theology. Vincent, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. It's such a great book, and I have a lot of questions. I have sent, I've already sent you the questions, and I, I guess you could tell that I had a lot of questions to ask. <laughs> but before that, I'm really interested to know more about uh, your background, your field of expertise, what, what made you become a professor of theology, and specifically what, uh, what attracted you to this uh, to, to the idea of writing about political theology and also uh, the cause of the Black people in the United States? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I, I started out uh, when I went to college uh, thinking I wanted to be a scientist or mathematician, but then uh, I discovered I was interested in uh, lots and lots of different classes, lots of different topics. Uh, and when I was taking uh, courses in religion, uh, I was able to think about uh, many different topics at once, to think about philosophy and anthropology and history and uh, art and uh, uh, the human experience uh, in general. So I, I found that, uh, you know, not only by studying religion could I uh, examine lots of different topics that interested me, but also I could um, study something that really mattered to the lives of, of people. Uh, while I was in college, I was involved in some labor organizing and uh, getting involved with uh, some uh, unionization efforts. And it was great to see the religious communities uh, getting out in support of those social justice issues. So that made me all the more uh, interested in studying religion. Uh, and then uh, later on, when I went to graduate school, I thought, you know, the particular way that I, I want to do this is to, to not think specifically about or exclusively about religious traditions, uh, but to think about the big questions that religions are after. Uh, what uh, And those, those questions are often uh, philosophical questions. What is the good life? How, how can we flourish? How can we live together? How can we pursue justice? Uh, and um, you know, as, uh, as a uh, Black person in the U.S., uh, those questions were inflected in a particular way uh, for me uh, from my own experience uh, growing up in uh, you know, uh, the U.S. and then you know, uh, entering the academy. Uh, I you know, wanted to bring the tools I was uh, gaining uh, in, my, in the classroom and you know, in my own studies to these questions that, that uh, really mattered uh, in my own life and to those around me about justice and about you know, uh, struggling against anti-Black racism. And uh, what was this sort of this book, Black Dignity? I'm, I'm guessing uh, Black Lives Matter also played a role in creating this book. But did you have the idea of writing the book before that, or is it something that happened afterwards? Yes. So uh, I, 
there are a couple uh, answers to that one. Uh, I'd worked on an earlier book uh, that was published called Black Natural Law, where I was looking mm -hmm. at the invocations of God's law or a higher law in Black political thought and seeing that as central to the tradition of Black political thought. So uh, we might think of Martin Luther King as someone who invokes God's law, but actually Frederick Douglass, Anna Julia Cooper, uh, Jesse Jackson, all sorts of um, uh, figures, even W.E.B. Du Bois, who's often seen as a secularist, is invoking God's law or higher law, uh, even coming from a kind of sociological perspective. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I uh, had been uh, thinking about what are the moral foundations of uh, black intellectual life and black justice struggles. Uh, and, but the, the story I told in that natural law book was kind of a sad story. But right? once there was a robust natural law tradition uh, that uh, paralleled, but also was importantly different from the European and Christian natural law traditions, and then it went away. And in the 70s, 80s, 90s, we don't hear this natural law language around black justice movements anymore. Uh, so that was a kind of sad story. But then I, uh, then Black Lives Matter happened. I noticed that, you know, that, that sad story doesn't fit the reality, right? That there is all sorts of energy. There is all sorts of moral vision coming from uh, Black political movements uh, on the ground, uh, often youth-led, often uh, led by, by women and queer folks. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I want to do uh, think more about where is that that moral vision coming from? It's if it's not coming coming from a tradition of natural law or God's law or higher law, where might it come from? Well, I kept noticing, um, or I noticed repeatedly this language of dignity in the first line of the Movement for Black Lives platform, in the names of organizations and the under the Black Lives Matter umbrella, uh, in the uh, speeches and writings and tweets uh, of uh, activists involved in the movement. So I thought, well, maybe I should uh, rethink this this um, uh, story about the core of the Black political tradition. Maybe it's not uh, best told as a story about higher law or God's law, but instead a story about dignity. It's a fascinating uh, uh, it's a fascinating story. And, and also you start the book with this story around Frederick Douglass. Um, and in that story, you talk about um, dignity, struggle, and uh, the the the. the uh, and the fact that how how well, why its dignity is a heart of the black struggle. So I'll, I'll leave it to you to talk about this. This is such a fascinating story, and I I'm originally from Iran myself, and I do follow the political struggle of women in Iran, and I love that sentence in the book uh, that dignity is in the struggle. So I would uh, let you talk about that story, Fred the Douglas story, and then it would be great if you could talk about your your definition of dignity what do you mean by dignity in this context and how is it from different from respectability or other similar sounding concepts mm -hmm. sure yeah and it, it is exciting to see how uh this language of dignity travels so widely geographically and also uh historically or that it's a language that pops up in lots of different contexts and uh that, that can suggest that it's powerful but also can be confusing right because it seems like dignity is being used in different ways so part of the challenge of this project was to uh, look for some coherence in that language of dignity. And to do that, I wanted to look at uh, foundational text uh, in the Black uh, intellectual tradition, uh, probably the most uh, sort of towering text of the 19th century Black uh, intellectual life, that is the uh, um, autobiographies of uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh, he writes his life story three times. These are uh, texts that become foundational for the uh, movement to abolish slavery, but also become uh, foundational for the reconstruction 
a movement, the movement to rebuild and reweave the democratic fabric of the, the U.S. after the, the Civil War. Uh, Frederick Douglass uh, was born in slavery uh, and eventually uh, escaped, became a, a leading uh, activist uh, uh, call, calling for the end of slavery. But the, the way that he uh, had the, the biggest impact was uh, in these uh, stories of his own life that, that he wrote. And in each of these stories of his own life that he wrote, one episode is always at the center. It's, an, it's a moment where uh, Douglas transitions from being being uh, fully understanding himself as enslaved, right, as a slave, as an object, as a, some something like an animal. Uh, and uh, then something happens, right? Uh, something sort of snaps in him. Uh, he, uh, his master, uh, Edward Covey, uh, uh, tries to grab him, tries to uh, whip him, tries to bind him uh, and, and sort of, uh, physically uh, attack him. And instead of just submitting, as Douglas had always done in the past and as uh, was expected of him, Douglas decides to fight back, uh, physically fight back, to grapple with uh, with Kobe. And they wrestle uh, on the uh, in this barn uh, in a in a scene that Douglas vividly depicts and then retells in the subsequent autobiographies. There are other uh, interesting characters around. Kobe Kobe tries to call on uh, other enslaved people to help uh, help him capture Douglas, but those people. Uh, say say that they won't. Douglas uh, uses his body to fight, but he also uses his words and reasoning to try and trick uh, Covey. And eventually they, they come to a standstill. Uh, Douglas doesn't escape at that moment. He's not free, but he realizes that he's more than just an animal. He's more than just an object. He He's more than just a slave. Right? Uh, he is a human being. And in Douglas's own words, he has dignity. He realizes that he has dignity through this process of struggle, physical struggle, grappling, but also intellectual struggle, also community building, right? He, it's through his relationships with the other enslaved people that uh, he could count on them to uh, come to his aid or at least not help Kobe. So there are lots of uh, multiple dimensions of, of struggle, but that, that struck me as uh, really uh, important and distinctive to think of dignity as struggle and struggle against mastery, right? Struggle against uh, in this case, a master trying to treat another per- human being as a slave, but also mastery as such, right? The, this phenomenon of domination that we find all over the world at, at different moments of time in all of our lives and in, in different ways and different extents on scales large and small. This struck me as, uh, you know, the what ought to be the starting point for any analysis of dignity, to think about dignity as a struggle against domination, uh, which is quite different from traditions of dignity that that see dignity as something like aristocracy, something like nobility, right, a kind of high rank, uh, um, the dukes and the, the duchesses and the, the kings having dignity and the poor people not having dignity. That was one older conception of dignity. But it's also quite different from this sort of universal conception of dignity that we find in Kant and also some Christian traditions uh, and other religious traditions where uh, just by nature of one's humanity, one has uh, dignity. In this case, dignity is something in, in the case of Douglas, and I think uh, more generally in the, the African-American tradition and probably more, more generally the, the Black tradition, uh, see dignity as um, as something that is done, right, in struggle, right? It's not something that's had, it's not something that's possessed, but something that's performed. Uh, and so attuning ourselves to that different sense of dignity that, that Douglas's uh, story so vividly uh, captures and, and helps uh, attune us to, I think, is really... Um, 
peaceful and reorienting how how we think about how we think about um, dignity. And it's in that sense that you mean dignity is is performative. It's just not a state like respect or respect that you usually associated with, with with the nobility. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, there there are, I think, in the in this black conception of dignity, elements of uh, the universal and elements of the aristocratic. Uh, those two earlier conceptions of dignity, and that because we all struggle with domination in our lives, right? We all dominate and we all are dominated in different ways on a scale, small and large. We're subject to these giant forces in the world of capitalism and uh, patriarchy and uh, and also small uh, on a small scale in our lives. We have bosses, we have uh, parents, we have others who, uh, who dominate uh, or uh, even when they ought not <laughs> dominate uh, us. You know, this is something we we all struggle with, and uh, and uh, so we're all struggling with domination in various ways. Sometimes we're quite passive about it and just sort of accepting it. Sometimes we're quite active about it and and trying to creatively respond to the domination that they were, we're encountering in our lives. So there's an, a universal element to uh, to black dignity in the sense, but there's also a a kind of a, um, a differential element. Right? There's some people who are struggling more in the, this case mm-hmm. of Douglas, where. Uh, his very humanity is on the line. Right? If he does not struggle, uh, he will be effectively an object or animal. If he struggles, he will realize his humanity. And in that case, there, there's a, a greater magnitude, I think, uh, of this kind of struggle. And and we ought to respect that as we might, as in olden days, they might have uh, respected an aristocrat or a bishop or some, some person mm. of high rank. Uh, so keeping both of those older senses of dignity in mind does seem important to me, even while... Uh, Sort of reading them through this uh, conception of black dignity as struggle against mm. domination. Uh, there is another question that I have. Uh, the, the oppression is, it's is is has always been a part of human history. So it's mm. African American oppression, oppression sexual or religious minorities minorities go through these women. There are still women who are fighting for their freedom or fighting to free themselves from oppression. Uh, in the book, you say that. Um, we need to recognize the distinct the distinctiveness of black oppression, and 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 also you go on to say that blackness is the ultimate paradigm of dignity. So I'm I'm curious to know more about it. Why? What is so distinctive uh, about black oppression? Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I've been you know as I've been having dialogues about this this book uh, with folks in different contexts, ranging from South Africa to uh, different parts of uh, Europe and uh, Latin America, it's been really interesting to hear ways in which uh, stories about domination and struggle are read differently in different places. And mm-hmm. uh, in some of those contexts, there's there's some suspicion of centering Black experience when talking about uh, uh, dignity and domination. The reason I think it's important to uh, is center uh, Blackness is, is not just about our current political moment and the uh, fruitfulness of the social movements around anti-blackness, which I think are you know, gen- uh, generating uh, deep uh, insight uh, as well as uh, power, right, uh, uh, to to uh, affect transformation that, that other movements ought to ought to learn from. But actually, I, I think the more important reason is you know the the long tradition uh, in um, uh, of, sort of theorizing dom- uh, domination of trying to figure out what domination means has always taken slavery as the paradigm case right? uh, from uh, ancient Greece and other sorts of ancient contexts where uh, uh, to the present, 
right? When, when uh, you know, Dominos is the master, right? Uh, it's a, a problem of mastery. And, uh, you know, mm. if we're worried about a problem of mastery, we need to be thinking about it, not just in the abstract, but particularly in the problem of slavery. You know, from there, we, we can understand cases of prisons, cases of patriarchy, all sorts of other, other cases. And when we're thinking about slavery, you know, the ancient world slavery is, is quite complicated, right? It's embedded in different economic systems. There are uh, forms of family relationship that, that persist, uh, varies a lot from context to context. The, the uh, paradigm uh, of slavery, I think, is, uh, you know, the, at least that's useful for us to think through, is the Middle Passage, right? When uh, African uh, folks are being uh, in, uh, enslaved and, and taken to uh, the Americas, uh, and that, that strikes me as a paradigm case because uh, the entire identity of the enslaved is as enslaved. Relationships to family, language, religion, land, wealth, uh, everything else, right, are, are being stripped away. Uh, and all that is left is the slave in pure form, something like that. Uh, obviously, that's that's uh, not um, uh, entirely true, right? But uh we're talking about the, the closest to a paradigm cases as we can get. Uh, so if we want to sort of study domination in laboratory conditions, right, with all of the complexities sort of bracketed, the, the case that we ought to reflect on is this case of the Middle Passage, I think. Uh, and, you know, if it's domination that we care about uh, in our own lives, in the lives of you know, others in, in various parts of the world uh, and across time, you know, all of those reflections, I think, are usefully routed through the middle passage, because that's the moment where we can clarify for ourselves in our own thinking, in our own uh, politics, what domination looks like and how best to respond. Um, and um, there, I have also a question about um, Af about black philosophy. Let's say um, there there are people, and I don't agree with them, but there are a lot of people, sometimes even well-meaning people, who say that. We're still creating hierarchies, and it's not only with this. For example, when uh, I come from a, again Muslim background, so when talk people talk about Muslim philosophy, I say, "Oh, what do you mean by Muslim philosophy? Philosophy is philosophy. You are uh, creating categories or distinctions that don't really exist." So, but what is Black philosophy here, and how is it different in general? For, in general, from philosophy as we know it, and what does it aim to achieve? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think this uh, there's a kind of empirical sense of this this question, right? Uh, where does one find people saying that they're doing black philosophy? And you know, th this is something that uh, I think is emerging in the academy in recent mm. uh, recent years, where there are uh, certain philosophy departments that are training people in a, a tradition of African American philosophical reflection or uh, so pan African philosophical reflection, uh, which um, you know I think has a lot of potential. Uh, that there are sources there, ways of thinking there, uh, questions that get asked there that are uh, sort of, um, un not attended to fully in other philosophical spaces. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's really important. I think the risk of uh, carving out that sort of corner of the philosophical academy and uh, as African-American or Pan-African or, or Black philosophy is that... Um, uh, philosophy becomes just contextual philosophy. I think some of this has happened in the theological world, where uh, there's a claim that you know all theology, uh, you know all uh, approaches to uh, a religious tradition happen through a particular context, which seems like it's missing something really important about the 
claims of a religious tradition to universality or to um, you know the importance uh, having importance for everyone, right? Uh, and having life life changing potential. Like similarly for philosophy, if one is is just saying you know, there there are traditions of European philosophy, there are traditions of Latin American philosophy, there are traditions of African American philosophy, and so on. They are each distinctive in various ways. Each respond to different questions. One is missing something that makes philosophy so exciting, right? which is that it's supposed to ask these deepest questions that everyone is asking, right, and all over the world across time, uh, and it's supposed to sort of uh, dig deep into you know, the meaning of justice and love and uh, anger and uh, the good life and so on. So, I mean, I, I think it's uh, important for me and uh, exciting, uh, I think, in uh, the uh when I when I see people doing this, uh, to read sources that come from a particular context, but are making claims that are universal or making claims that go beyond that context about you know uh, what wisdom really is, but what justice really is, and that's what I see happening in this uh, black philosophical tradition. That there, there is a very particular experience that's giving rise to the kind of reflection uh, in figures like Frederick Douglass or Aimé Césaire or uh, Senghor or um, you know, uh, 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 Martin Luther King or, or others, um, uh, and you know, including those who are located within the philosophical, the philosophical, philosophical guild in the academy, uh, and yet, right, there, there are also these universal claims that are being made, uh, and claims that you know um, what the insights of Black philosophy are actually superior to the insights of other right? They, they're taking into account the sorts of questions that were asked in European traditions of and Christian tradition, Christian European traditions of philosophical reflection, they're taking into account of that. They're saying those questions, those questions and answers get things wrong. They're missing important things. We understand, you know, what Kant is saying. We understand what Hegel is saying, but we want to do something different. We want to focus somewhere else. We want to, uh, uh, you know, push the conversation in a different direction. So th that's um, that, that's sort of how I think about Black philosophy. There is another concept that has been around for quite some time now, and you 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 you, you touch upon that in the book as well. Afro pessimism, and how, what how do you define this concept, and how how is it similar or different from um, black dignity? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Afro pessimism uh, captured the public imagination in the U.S. and I think beyond when, uh, in 2020, right around the time of a, an eruption of Black Lives Matter protests during mm. COVID. Uh, Frank Wilderson published a book called uh, Afro-Pessimism. Frank Wilderson had been writing about the topic and using the phrase for maybe a decade or so uh, before that. Uh, but this this book sort of captured a mood. And um, it, it, so there, there, there are a couple of senses of that, right? One is uh, a mood as opposed to a, a set of claims or intellectual project. And, you know, I, I think appreciating that mood is really important, right? That uh, we're in an era of climate change, in an era of Me Too, in an era of, you know, increasing awareness of police violence and um, uh, the continuing legacies of colonialism and, and much else, right? Uh, you know, their uh, hope doesn't seem like the right language. And, uh, you know, have, having a, a sitting with that darkness, sitting with the deep systemic interconnected uh, uh, problems that we face today. It seems really important, and, and the, that language of Afro-pessimism as a kind of mood, I think, is capturing that uh, and is helping to bridge some, some social movement discourse um, uh, around uh, Black Lives Matter with uh, academic discourse. Um, there's also uh, a very specific kind of pragmatic reason that Afro-pessimism 
uh, earlier uh, when Wilderson and, and his colleagues were uh, first sort of using the language uh, went into circulation, which was the discourse in the U.S. and particularly in California, which is a, a state where uh, the race question is not a black and white question. Like there are huge Asian American communities, there are huge Latin American communities. So uh, Wilderson and those around him in California were uh, saying. You know, uh, all of the kind of race politics here is about people of color and it's about building coalitions. It's not talking about the specificity of the black experience. Uh, and we need a language that helps us to label the specificity of that, that black experience. So th that, that seems um, uh, important to, to recognize and remember as well. And then uh, so finally to uh, address the question more directly, I mean, I think that the claims around Afro-pessimism are usually about uh, the exclusion of blackness being constitutive for the modern world. That is sort of pushing away or ignoring or um, uh, you know, uh, sort of, uh, subjugating uh, blackness where blackness involves black people, but also black things and the, the stuff that swirls around black people uh, is necessary for uh, and makes possible our modern modern world, our contemporary world uh, is you know has been an ingredient in European thought, Christian thought, uh, other traditions of thought uh, that often goes unrecognized. And because the problem is so deep, right? It's constitutive, right? Anti-blackness is constitutive. Uh, it can't just be a little policy policy fix here or there uh, that is the appropriate response to uh, anti-black racism. Right? There has to be uh, as uh, first uh, Ame Césaire and then uh, Wilderson quoting Césaire say, an end to the world, right? The world as we know it right, is, is based on anti-Blackness. This is a claim. And then uh, to, uh, uh, for that to, um, to fix the problem of anti-Blackness, the world has to end and we have to imagine a world beyond the end of the world. Uh, so that's a pretty dramatic claim. In some ways, uh, you know, I like to read it pragmatically, right? That there was this particular California problem that um, these folks were responding to. Uh, and, you know, as a political maneuver, uh, it's helpful to say, actually, the problems faced by Asian Americans in California and by Latinos in California and by Native Americans in California and by Black Americans in California are different. Uh, there's something very specific about the problems of Black Americans, and we need to tell big stories, dramatic stories, that help focus our attention on that. That seems right. Um, it also seems like there's something generative about uh, imagining uh, imagining the way that racism is linked with uh, systems of thought, right? that uh, even as that's a big claim and you know, a claim that's not something you could prove or disprove, I think it's a claim that uh, opens the imagination or helps us notice things that, that we might otherwise no not notice. So that, that seems uh, useful about uh, Afro-pessimism. Uh, uh, in contrast, though, right, uh, in the, this book, Black Dignity, I, I want to start with uh, social movement discourse, right? Start with those who are organizing against domination, those who are organizing against anti-Black racism, take their language uh, both today and in the past, uh, you know, in, the, in this tradition of struggle against anti-Black racism, take that language as um, authoritative, uh, even though, even as it's defeasible, even as it's not always right, it's something that we should turn to. Uh, and um, uh, and to really focus on uh, social movements uh, and uh, the uh, vision and power of Black social movements 
uh, as um, you know, not redemptive, but uh, you know, the best place we can turn to understand uh, the everything about the world, not just uh, some particular aspects of the world. So in some ways, it's a flip side of the Afro-pessimism, right? The Afro-pessimism is kind of sad story, primarily intellectual story that says, you know, uh, anti-blackness is connected with everything. I agree, uh, there's uh, racism connected with everything, but that could be a happier story, right? We can see the movements against racism as movements that are helping us transform the world as a whole in the in the direction of justice and not just uh, movements that are uh, pushing against uh, one particular problem that is anti-blackness. All right, uh, let's talk about multiculturalism and liberalism. You are very critical of them. And I remember I saw a video clip of uh, the late Malcolm X who called a liberal a fox. Uh, uh, that was, I don't remember when it was, uh, when it was recorded. So wh why do you, wh why are you critical of multiculturalism and liberalism? Do you, do you think they, these they have been conducive or have helped uh, the cause of African-Americans in the, in the States? Yeah, so uh, thanks, thanks for that, that question. And Malcolm X is, you know, has a wonderful orator and uh, has uh, really powerful things to say about the limits of liberalism. So does Martin Luther King Jr., right? Yeah. Uh, the letter from Birmingham jail is directed to the white moderates, the white liberals, the ones who think that, you know, with enough conversation, with enough listening to each other, with enough, uh, you know, sort of opening up to uh, our difference uh, in time, we can resolve the, the deep problems that, that the nation faces. And uh, Malcolm, uh, Martin Luther King, like Malcolm X, is saying, no, right? There, there are times when we, we confront moral abominations and we need to say, this has to end. Right? This isn't a time for further discussion. This isn't a time for hearing everyone's opinion. This isn't a time for bringing everyone to the table. Uh, this is a time to sort of put our bodies on the line and say uh, that there can be no more of this, uh, this abomination uh, that was segregation in, in the, the South and that we can see uh, versions of that in, in various social movements in, in different parts of the world. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in one sense, you know, uh, Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X are, are giving reasons, this sort of sense of urgency uh, that um, the sort of liberal imagination uh, is inadequate to our moment. And it feels like this is uh, increasingly the discourse of younger folks, right, that um, in an era, as I was saying before, of climate change, of uh, patriarchy, Me Too, uh, colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we, uh, um, there's, a, there's a sense of urgency, right? A sense that you know, if we don't act now, we may not have a chance again to act, right? Which climate change brings so much into, into focus, but uh, which you know, we ought to feel uh, about police violence, about prisons, about other issues as well. Uh, the, the sort of, um, uh, traditional liberal political imagination isn't up to that task. That's sort of one side, thinking about multiculturalism in particular, at least in this book, I, I try and think of a kind of uh, periodization where, you know, there was a, uh, you know, which is focused on a U.S. context, but I think maps into a post-colonial context as well. There's a sort of era of uh, protest where um, racism was named as a legal problem uh, and uh, then you know those that that push was in part successful and part unsuccessful. It radicalized in the U.S. There was a Black Power movement, Black Panthers, and others. You know, in uh, post-colonial context, one finds other sort of versions of this radicalization, especially when there's violent struggle involved. Uh, and then 
we enter into an era of multiculturalism, 80s, 90s, and uh, aughts uh, uh, in the U.S. And I, I think the, period, the dates are a little bit different, but I, I think things like this happen in, in other uh, post-colonial contexts uh, and in other uh, metropoles, uh, uh, metropole contexts. I, there's a sense where uh, we re there's a, this, uh, a re remembering of uh, ourselves as a nation uh, or as a people, as one that had sinned, recognized the sin, and then recovered from it, right? Now we have all sorts of different people who can work together, who can be included, who can share their share their their traditions and their foods and their games and their clothes, uh, and will appreciate how everyone is different, but we can all be together, right? This manifests in different ways in different places, but uh, I think it had a whole lot of ideological force uh, in the U.S. for uh, three decades. Uh, and that... Uh, during those three decades, uh, Black justice uh, did not advance. <laughs> during those three decades, the statistics about education segregation, about uh, wealth inequality, about uh, pollution in Black neighborhoods, these statistics are not getting better. They're getting worse. Right? Uh, so this uh, ideology of multiculturalism, which seems like it's a kind of happy story, everyone getting along, we solve the problems, actually is... Uh, just masking the problems, right? Is and uh, making it uh, uh, freezing our capacity to address them because it's telling a story about uh, problems as things of the past that that have now been addressed uh, and are now being memorialized. <laughs> uh, so you know that that strikes me as the problem that motivated uh, the rise of Black Lives Matter and similar movements in the 2010s. Uh, in the U.S. context, in particular, Barack Obama sort of promised to be the realization of multiculturalism. He embodied physically multiculturalism, being a, a, the son of an African father and a white mother from Kansas. Uh, he was multiculturalism. Now that was ruling the U.S. And yet police violence was increasing, uh, was, was increasingly visible. Prison population was still uh, hugely, uh, um, uh, it was still huge and disproportionately affecting Black folks and poor folks, um, et cetera. So uh, seeing that disconnect between the triumph of multiculturalism and the facts on the ground, particularly for poor and marginalized Black folks, getting worse and worse led to this sort of eruption. And now I think my book and others are, are trying to theorize that 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 break, right? Say, what what will come after multiculturalism? There, That was a paradigm where at a moment of paradigm shift, it's not clear what the new paradigm will be, right? We, we see the, the, the cracks in the old paradigm. We see it's not addressing what it's supposed to address. It's, it's incoherent. We, we're setting it aside, but what comes next? And I think that that moment of paradigm shift that we're in now is causing uh, a good deal of the um, sort of uh, uncertainty and fissures and internal tensions within social movements, as well as in broader political discourse, because it's not clear what the new paradigm will be. Uh, and and uh, when you responded, I was reminded of James Baldwin, you know, who there was again this video of him who said that you always tell me it takes time uh you took my parents time my grandfather's time my nephew's time i don't remember exact quote but it was again i guess a criticism of this uh liberal idea of getting into dialogue you know to solve the problems anyway uh what is black political theology and uh again when i was reading your book i was very much reminded of the idea of liberation theology uh, is it 
close to that or is it different from that? Yeah, so uh, I, I wear a couple of different hats, right? One is uh, that I teach in the theology and religious studies department uh, here in the U.S. at mm -hmm. a Catholic university, uh, although I'm not, not Catholic myself. Um, uh, and uh, what theology and political theology mean in that context uh, is one quite particular sort of thing. Uh, and what uh, black political theology means in a social movement context is, a, is quite a different sort of thing. So I'll address the latter, uh, latter first. Um, and, you know, I would start by start addressing that by noting that, um, you know, there's often a story told about uh, the recent wave of racial justice movements that says these are secular movements. You know, in the 1950s and 60s, there were Christian ministers and Jewish leaders and other religious leaders, Muslim leaders, Malcolm X and others, who were on the forefront of uh, the uh, these racial justice movements. But today... We see unchurched people, we see young people, we see queer folks who are alienated from, from all religion, uh, who are at the, at the center, on the front lines of these, of these movements. Uh, so there's something true about that, that story. Certainly the optics uh, have changed and that there aren't uh, men, uh, uh, sort of black men wearing suits uh, and uh, clerical collars who are leading, leading the charge. Uh, but uh, on the ground, there, there still is a whole lot of uh, engagement with religion in various forms uh, in these movements, right? There, there is uh, the use of religious infrastructure, church buildings, and uh, is of clergy networks and so on uh, to support movements. There's uh, also, uh, most importantly, from uh, from the perspective of, of this book, a religious language uh, and particularly a sort of spiritual language that circulates around these movements. So a language of... Uh, uh, spirit and faith and uh, uh, imagining uh, impossible futures uh, and uh, something like, uh, you know, uh, uh, redemption uh, is a language that draws on a variety of different religious traditions um, in the U.S. context often is heavily influenced by Christianity, but not exclusively, um, is, I think, recently self-consciously drawing on African traditional religions and incorporating those practices and languages into social movement spaces, black social movement spaces. Uh, so that, in a sense, that is black political theology today, right? It is you know, these uh, social movement uh, movements that are uh, eclectically drawing on different spiritual traditions to address the um, political problems, uh, uh, anti-blackness and, and related uh, issues that, that, are, that they uh, confront. Sort of taking off that, that hat and putting on the uh, more official uh, sort of uh, scholar of theology and religious studies uh, hat. Um, yeah, I, I mean, th there's a, a long tradition, uh, not that long, maybe uh, half half century tradition uh, within the academy of uh, doing uh, Christian theology from a black perspective. So uh, James Cone is uh, often seen as a founding father of, of this movement, but there are a series of figures who are uh, really uh, instrumental in uh, making space within academic theology for uh, Black uh, reflection, uh, both in terms of sy systematic questions around who is God, what, it, what is the relationship between Jesus and God, and, and so on, from a Black perspective, but also ethical questions, right? How, how ought uh, religious folks, and in this case, particularly Christians, respond to this problem or that problem? Uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, 
in a sense, that is black political theology, but it's also um, being inflected uh, recently by the pressure that's put on those academic spaces by social movement spaces. Those academic spaces uh, had energy in the 60s and 70s uh, and uh, have in some ways root, routinized that charisma, right? They keep doing what they were doing from the 60s and 70s and They'll write books about it and write articles about the other people who wrote articles about the other people who wrote articles about it, right? This thing that uh, academics do of, uh, sort of keeping a conversation going, um, which can um, allow allow participants in the conversation to take their eye off the ball, right? There, there's actual anti-blackness happening now. There's police violence happening now, right outside our windows, right? There, there's there are almost two million people kept in cages in the U.S. right now. Uh, so I, I think uh, we're seeing black political theology. Uh, in this sort of disciplinary sense, having to reimagine itself by the pressure being put on it by social movements who are very much rooted in those realities of poor and black folks in the U.S. today and beyond. And you have talked about this uh, throughout this interview that religion and theology has been at the heart of black struggle. Uh, But at the same time, there have been people who, like James Baldwin, who have been critical of the role of the church. And where do you see the role of secularism in in this struggle against domination? Yeah, it's a a great great question and a a tricky one. Uh, So a figure like Baldwin uh, proclaims himself to be uh, alienated from or a distance from the church and yet his literary and intellectual life is totally determined by religious categories, right? He, he's pushing against them, but they're also shaping how he sees the world and how he writes about and represents uh, that that world. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that uh, the depth of uh, influence at the level of imagine, sort of conceptual imagination uh, and affect uh, and style, right? of religious traditions on black uh, um, black life, black intellectual life, black philosophical uh, work. You know, uh, you know I, I think it's hard to uh, ignore. That being said, it, um, this question of uh, secularism uh, is one that I, I'm particularly, uh, particularly interested in because, you know, there, there was this uh, wave of scholarship on the question of secularism that largely grew out of uh, anthropologists interested in Islam, uh, particularly in Egypt, Talal Assad and Sabah Mahmoud and others, uh, who were making the claim that secularism uh, in uh, those contexts is a political tool of the West, of imperialism, of liberalism, uh, and uh, religious movements uh, are uh, pushing back against secularism and by pushing back against secularism, they are doing politics, right? Because by pushing back against secularism, you're pushing back against all the connected ideologies. So there, there seems like, you know, that that strikes me as quite compelling, at least to, to think with and argue with. Uh, and the, there ha- has been relatively little um, of that kind of conversation uh, uh, traveling to the context of race in the U.S., right? Obviously, in, in the European context, it's different because uh, sort of the Islamic studies discourses mixed in with uh, uh, questions of, of race and racialization. But in the U.S., uh, the sort of study of black religion is operating in a different different world and uh, often not very conscious of questions of secularism and the way that secularism can be entangled with ideologies of whiteness, ideologies of liberalism, ideologies of empire. Uh, and that I think that the sort of scholarship and critical thinking on that is just emerging. So 
I do think it's important um, to be careful in uh, in our analysis of social movements to like neither uh, embrace the secularist reading of these movements uh, or these sort of intellectual intellectual projects that are implicit in the movements, nor to do the other secularist move, which is to caricature religion and manage religion by caricaturing it and saying this uh, that's what we find. Uh, here, right? Mar Martin Luther King is Christianity, or some Malcolm X is Islam, something like that, right? W which is also getting religion wrong and uh, limiting its potential, containing its potential by um, playing with uh, a kind of cultural fantasy. Uh, so, I mean, I think these are things that we need to be beware of in our in our analysis, and that, that I try and avoid in the book, but I think are really tricky to navigate. Uh, let's talk about the idea of resistance again, resistance to domination. You talk about ontological resistance to domination. What are examples? What is an ontological resistance to domination? What are some examples of this this form of resistance to to domination? Yeah, I think uh, so. I think I I try, although I, I'm not always consistent, to uh, invoke the language of struggle as opposed to resistance. I worry that resistance is a quite created uh, language and the kind of Foucauldian critiques uh, of resistance are, uh, you know, get something right that, um, you know, where um, uh, the resistance may uh, take all sorts of forms that we uh, don't imagine and maybe maybe almost impossible because of the ways that we're complicit in, in systems, right? So uh, struggle, to me, feel vivid, right? Uh, in this sort of Frederick Douglass uh, example, we see struggle physically happening or depicted to be physically happening. Uh, and uh, we also, uh, I think, struggle evokes uh, labor, labor union strikes, right? A kind of struggle for better wages, uh, or um, uh, it, it invokes uh, sort of uh, even. Uh, is a quiet and small scale uh, struggle that we have in, in a workplace against the boss, right? Uh, which might be directly against the boss or might be slowing down our work, right? Uh, or not doing exactly what the boss says because of the, the, the relationship of domination with the boss and the sort of broader system of capitalism that the boss um, uh, points to. So uh, that, that language of uh, uh, struggle, I, I think, um, is meant to help us notice these different sites, including uh, silences, which can be a, a form of struggle, right? If there's a, a discourse that one is expected to participate in and one refuses by being silent, that strikes me as a form of, of struggle. Uh, I think the language of spiritual struggle is really interesting as well and, and evocative and, and useful. Um, uh, I don't know exactly what it means, but it, it seems interesting to think about prayer as a form of struggle, uh, which again might be a kind of, um, work struggle within oneself uh uh it, that reconfigures one's own orientation to the world in a way that's misaligned with the powers that be and so is a form of struggle against uh, the, the powers that be so uh those all are sort of examples of uh struggle what i mean by ontological struggle is struggle that's oriented against domination right so there are all sorts of struggles that we have and we struggle in a very uh, loose kind of sense struggle to lose weight, struggle to get to work on time, struggle to um, uh, get the kids to go to bed on time or, or whatever it, it may be. Uh, uh, and those are not all about domination. Uh, so 
being able to tell a story about domination and move between that story about domination uh, and the particular practices seems like the, the really tricky thing and the thing that I'm trying to sort of commend and, and offer some examples of in the book, right? How, how can we sort of, uh, offer this picture of a system of domination, which is fairly abstract uh, by relating it to a paradigm case, that the case of uh, the Middle Passage, uh, and then uh, thinking about struggle against this rather abstract system uh, in this uh, variety of variety of ways that range from very uh, active and direct, like protesting uh, and holding a sign, to indirect, aesthetic, uh, musical pro musical struggle, silence and struggle, etc. Um, again, in the book, you, you talk about new moral vocabulary emerging around Black Lives Matter. And I really love the way you have uh, named your chapters. You have uh, the chapters are called Black Rage, Black Love, Black Family, Black Futures, Black Magic, uh, which is another incentive for people to, to, to read the book. It's a very easy book to read and very, very informative as well. So what is this? new moral vocabulary that you're talking about and then maybe you could also talk about uh, i have a lot of questions from these chapters but maybe we should talk about a couple of them uh, and i'm really interested in the idea of black love hmm. sure uh yeah so i, I mean I, I worry that uh philosophers that, that the methods that we use in in uh black philosophy ought not simply replicate the methods that are used uh in uh the sort of uh, traditions of European uh, philosophy, uh, that is, starting with um, uh, ordinary language, uh, conceptual analysis, uh, even the sort of uh, 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 deep reflection that one gets in Heideggerian traditions, uh, or the sort of conceptual work that, uh, the sort of um, uh, dialectical work that one gets in the Hegelian traditions, you know, that, that all seems uh, really useful and productive, but uh, needn't be the starting point for Black philosophy. And so the sort of experiment of, of this book was to say, you know, what if we start with the not ordinary language that one hears on the street, but the ordinary language of a protest movement, right? The, the kind of uh, uh, slogans on posters, uh, hashtags on Instagram, uh, the uh, um, activist uh, speeches, and uh, uh, chants. So what if we take that as authoritative? What if we take, I mean, if we believe that social movements are the best place we have to look for a vision of justice, you know, for a true vision of justice, then we ought to start with the language of social movements uh, and work from there, right? Figure out what it's trying to say, what it gets wrong, where it's incoherent, uh, but always turn back to, return to that language of uh, social movements that are that are pushing uh, in, in directions of of justice. So I, I tried to organize the book, as, as you uh, point out, uh, according to uh, different key slogans of, uh, you know, circulating around Black Lives, Black Lives Matter. Uh, those I didn't aspire to be exhaustive and read all of the all of the slogans, but I chose these slogans because I thought they addressed issues that are uh, of perennial interest in philosophy and in sort of uh, philosophy in the broadest sense, right? Thinking uh, across history and across geography about uh, truth and goodness and beauty and uh, and so on and and how to live well. Uh, so I saw these uh, hashtags as occasions to enter in from this black perspective into those 
perennial uh, uh, dialogues about big questions. Uh, what about Black Rage? How can Black Rage generate solidarity? And I'm deliberately asking this because uh, there, there again, there are a lot of, like I said, well-meaning people who want actually racial justice, but they say, well, look, this rage doesn't do a thing. We need to see, get into dollar. We need to talk. But there are, there, there, as you mentioned earlier, there are times that, no, you need to be rightfully angry. So how can this rage, that rage, generate solidarity? Yeah. So on the one hand, the, the, the word rage uh, uh, sounds like uh, it marks a person you don't want to be sitting next to. On the other hand, the term righteous indignation sounds like someone you do want to be friends with, right? Someone who has righteous indignation you know, uh, is uh, someone who's noticing things about the world that others haven't noticed and they're upset about it and they want to they want to transform it. Uh, and it, if we sit for a minute with indignation, right, it's about uh, dignity uh, not being respected, right? Uh, going against dignity, right? Indignation. Uh, so that's a, that's a sense of rage that I wanted to, to reflect on and, and to ponder uh, in, in that uh, chapter, the sense of rage that occurs not at a particular uh, act uh, that was committed that makes me upset, but about uh, uh, the limits of my ability to name the things that are getting me upset. Right? This seems like a, a really important difference between anger and rage, right? If anger is about particular acts in the world and rage is about something much deeper, right? some uh, feature of our conceptual world that limits our, our ability to speak uh, about what is upsetting us. And so we can only scream, we can only rage, we can only uh, uh, seethe with um, uh, uh, sort of uh, these, uh, 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 negative, uh, negative affect, which isn't, uh, doesn't need to be stuck in negativity, but can uh, find uh, at its best, um, echoes in others who are also feeling alienated, who are also finding that the dominant discourse, that the way that people are talking about uh, some feature of the world is, you know, has no space for them to express what, what, what matters to them. But in the case of anti-Blackness, right, if the, uh, until very recently, there was no space in the discourse to talk about prisons as a problem. Right? The question was just, how many new prisons can we build? How many? Uh, how much can we lengthen prison sentences? Uh, so, uh, for those who have family members incarcerated, right, how how is one to relate to that discourse? Right, the only thing one can have is a kind of rage because there's no space to name the 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 apt reaction uh, if there's no space in the in the discourse. And by finding others who are raging, other family members of those incarcerated who are also seething uh, with the, the, this kind of deep second order anger. Uh, one can say, why are we both so upset? Well, there's a system that's that's excluding us from the from the, the conversation. Let's let's see what we can do together about that system. And and is that what you mean by saying that we all need to become abolitionists? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, this uh, language of abolition is uh, circulating more and more uh, widely in the last decade or so. It seems really promising uh, to me in many ways that uh, we're remembering how quickly uh, people's consciousnesses could uh, 
transform with respect to slavery mm. that over the course of a couple of decades most uh americans uh and i think similar things happen in different parts of the world were thought slavery was you know, not great but also you know not something we need to act on immediately abolitionists as a social movement transformed that right it made most people think we need to do something about slavery this is a moral abomination that that sort of spirit of a uh, of a committed movement transforming public discourse uh, seems really powerful. And, and I think it's what prison abolitionists are doing and why that language is being picked up much more widely uh, beyond just the case of, of the prison. I, I worry sometimes that what it's a little unclear when that language is expanding what we're supposed to abolish. Is it authority or is it domination? I think too often, especially, uh, well, uh, I want to say especially younger folks, but I think people of all ages are guilty of this, you know, are upset about authority, right? Uh, without really thinking thinking this through, right? Uh, think uh, authority is something that we need as a practical matter in our lives, right? We treat the dentist as an authority, right? Authority with respect to our teeth. The problem is domination. The problem is those who enjoy their authority too much, right? And, and so you uh, arbitrarily exercise their will on others and drive pleasure from that, and so do it more and more. A domination is a problem, and abolition uh, as a as a political vision is a is a vision of a world without domination, one that we there's no clear path from here to that vision because domination is so baked into the world as we have it, but it's still crucially important to imagine together what that world without domination would look like, and that's what I think an abolition vision is trying to do. Uh, as a last question, is there any other book or project you're currently working on? Yeah, so the the project I'm. Uh, most excited now is uh, thinking about the concept of abuse. Uh, so I, I think I have the bad habit of um, doing a, uh, writing a book and then uh, spending a lot of time thinking about what's wrong with that book. Uh, so uh, you know, in a, in a sense, that's what get, uh, got me working on this Dignity Project. I worked on the Black Natural Law Project, and then I, I saw I got things wrong. Right? I told a sad story. I told a story of uh, Black justice movement decline. That's actually not. The story that that needs to be told, or or that that fits the world. Uh, so similarly, similarly, I, I think with this dignity book, you know, I, I uh, worry that focusing uh, so much on slavery and domination uh, can erase the variety of forms of uh, ill treatment that we find in the world. Right? That domination is important, but it's not the only kind of uh, uh, bad behavior, uh, and. Uh, you know, I think Gen Z, the younger folks, uh, are doing a great job of highlighting all sorts of bad behavior that previously went um, sort of under the radar. Things like gaslighting, right? Various forms of, uh, you know, Me Too related, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, practices, um, uh, and you know, these strike me as better described as abuse rather than domination, uh, mm. where uh, so, uh, you know, my, the project I'm working on now is trying to think about what, um, what would it mean to have a, uh, pick out abuse, uh, not use the word very loosely as it is now, anything we don't like, we call abuse, but actually think about it as a very specific kind of phenomenon in the world, uh, that, uh, you know, doesn't have the same paradigm case as slavery. It's not based on the Frederick Douglass paradigm. It's actually about entangled wills, right? About the abuser. Uh, trying to make the uh, abused uh, think that they have the same interests when actually they don't, 
right? Uh, uh, and the violence that happens when those those two wills are entangled. So that's what mm-hmm. I've been uh, thinking mm-hmm. about these days. Well, it's a great habit. It keeps keeps generating new books, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dr. Vincent Lloyd, thank you very much for taking your time to talk with us. Really, really enjoyed this conversation, and I strongly encourage our listeners to read the book. It's an it's an easy read, and 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 like I said, it gives them a lot of food for thought. And what I particularly liked about the book is is true that you talk about the distinctiveness of black struggle and dignity. But what I found great about the book was its universality, because I felt that I um I'm not like saying what I had experienced or what I witnessed is anything similar to this, but I could see the the points of the commonalities. I could see how in other parts of the world, this this idea of becoming abolitionist, this idea of resistance to domination, all echoes with their struggles as well all over the world. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Take care.